You're listening to The Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Stram, and on this week's lesson, we are going to close out our series on searching for Adam and um, the biblical origin of humanity. Uh, Searching for Adam, Genesis and the Truth about Man's Origin. That is the title of the book that we've been going through. It's a book edited by Dr. Terry Mortensen, the historian of geology there out of Answers in Genesis. And they put together this helpful volume that we've been going through, and and it's uh, compiled using a number of different writers on a number of different subjects, ranging from um, history and biblical study, biblical interpretation, um, and then, of course, there's the cultural studies and anthropology and uh, genetics and the sciences and uh, just this this awesome book that that searches, that takes us on this journey searching for Adam and going through all these various different disciplines. And really, it just serves to underscore how the world that we live in and what we know to be true about human history, about our uh, human condition and our our sinful propensities. It just goes to show how reality is in such confirmation of what we find written on the pages of the Word of God. And you know, that is exactly what we would expect if the Bible is a true accounting of um, history and if it's true when it tells the future and if it's true when it speaks to our present experience. That is true in a deep sense, right? As true as true can be. Not true for you, true for me, uh, not uh, one option on the spiritual buffet line. That's not the kind of thing we're talking about here. We believe that Christianity is true in the ultimate sense, in the objective sense, the Bible is true. And uh, since it is true, then we would expect reality, of course, to conform to what the Bible uh, says, and uh, we find that it certainly does do that. So as we've been going through this series, um, I-, I highly encourage you to go ahead and buy the book. If you're just joining us, perhaps you're just joining us for the first time, I'm sure we have people uh, every week who are hearing the current episode, the current lesson for the first time. And so if that's the case, I encourage you to uh, go back and buy the book. It'll be in the podcast show notes here, okay? You can um, go and, and buy the book from Amazon. I think it's only five ninety nine to get the Kindle version of the book. And go back there and, and buy that and follow along if you want to. And go back to the first um, lesson in this series. And I, I want to say it was, oh, 17 maybe, maybe less than 17 or 18. I, I can't remember the exact number. Uh, but in any sense, the title is... Um, is Adam the real deal? Is Adam the real deal? And I'll go ahead and link to that in the show notes as well so you can find your place there. But I encourage you, if you're just joining us for the first time, go back to the beginning of this series. And uh, it's going to be uh, pretty enlightening, I think. It, it's a good introduction, in, in a sense, to what we teach here on this podcast as far as um, our origins. Now, this is a creation science podcast. Since I'm talking to those who might be joining us for the first time, this is a creation science podcast. Um, but fundamental to understanding creation science is understanding the backdrop. So very often, 
uh, we'll go through a series or just have a one-off episode that's maybe not so science-driven, but it might be driven by something in biblical studies, might be driven by, um, it could be driven by a, a current event of some sort that points uh, either to the truthfulness of of our uh, of our origins, or, or perhaps it's uh, a new article that threatens the truthfulness of the Bible's account of origins, and it's something that we need to talk about. Um, so uh, this is a creation science podcast, but there are a lot of different factors that go into play here, and a lot of different uh, subjects that we'll cover that really help us to understand the idea of of origins and uh, and building the creationist uh, understanding of the world. So that's what we do here. And we do it every week, 7.30, uh, just about on the dot, between 7 and 7.30 on Thursdays. And uh, and uh, we've been doing it since last August. I was just looking uh, the other day since last August. We've had good results so far. And we're looking forward to continuing it. No plans to discontinue this podcast anytime soon. None whatsoever. And as a matter of fact, uh, if you listened to last week's episode, we've uh, we've got some stuff going on. I think we've got some pretty exciting things going on. We've, of course, been talking about the Creation Academy, which is a new uh, membership opportunity that we will be launching in January of 2019. And essentially, uh, $6.99 per month uh, gets you access to what will be an extensive video library of creationist training materials. It's going to come with workbooks and uh, PDF downloads, audio downloads, um, Q&As with real creation scientists, and, and scores more, quarterly ebooks. Uh, got some good things in the works. And so that's coming out uh, next year, early next year. I'm excited about that. Uh, also, of course, um, there are multiple ways to engage with our ministry. We just started putting out new videos. Those are on our website, stevestram.com slash videos. You can go check out. And also, of course, if you are interested in having someone come to your church or, or event, whatever it may be, of course, it, it depends. We vet each one individually, but, um, uh, if you're interested in having somebody come out and speak on, on, on some of these topics, whether it be just creation or, uh, ev- uh, evolution um, or, or general apologetics stuff, you know, given a defense of, of the faith, why uh, why we believe that Jesus uh, indeed did die and rise again, why, why we can trust the Bible. Um, you know, what's the deal with the dinosaurs, right? I mean, don't, don't dinosaurs disprove uh, I, I, the biblical story of, of the world, um, of, of, you know, I mean, if the earth is young, where do the dinos fit in, right? So that, that's a talk that we do. How to be a Christian in the classroom. There's another talk that we do, dealing with how to deal with the ideas and the ideologies and the, and the vain philosophies, if you look at Colossians 2.8 there, uh, that have um, intruded in our uh, institutions our universities and, and even our public high schools and elementary schools. You know, education largely is a result, public education in, in some sense is largely a result of the Christian worldview and the Christian um, um, sourcing or understanding behind bettering knowledge and gaining knowledge and realizing that there is more to learn, there is a, a better end to be achieved, and these are really all Christian 
ideas. We should aim to learn more about God. Many of our universities here in America today were founded to train Christians. Even some founded to specifically to train pastors, to be pastor schools. And of course, some of the same places today are uh, the most well-known secular institutions in the world. Many of them today teach that uh, transgenderism and homosexuality are things not only to be tolerated, but to be celebrated. And of course, uh, to believe in these things, you would have to deny fundamental biology. Uh, it's a fact of biology. Uh, males cannot become females, no matter how hard you try. It's, it's physically impossible for a male to become a female. Uh, homosexuality, it, it, it's, it's, it's just not God's way. And the Bible speaks clearly about that it's wrong. It's against nature, the Bible says. So we have to deal with these things, and we have to understand that when we send our kids off to uh, what we may think is a it's a good place to learn what we may think is very prestigious and has uh, accolades out the wazoo and is a place that we could trust with the with the training of our children. We must not forget the fact that most of these places absolutely deny fundamental science by um, praising and by proliferating these political and emotional agendas that we have. So just think about that. Now, we want to go ahead and get into this series, but of course what I, what I was trying to say just to finish out is that, uh, you know, this is a tough time for college-age students, for, for high school students, but, you know, for you too, if, as parents or maybe you're not a parent, just as an adult, I mean, you're out there trying to witness every day and you're trying to share your faith. Maybe your church is like ours. We have regularly scheduled visitation and soul-winning outings. We're always trying to contact new people in the community and bring people into into the church and uh, interact with people and 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 get them saved. I mean, that's the ultimate goal here. And um, maybe you just feel that you need to be better equipped or you're, you know, if you're the pastor of a church or, or whatever, maybe your church needs to be better equipped, just give us a call. We'd be happy to come out and uh, you can go to steveshram.com slash preaching if you want to and take a look at what we've got to offer there. Take a look at some of the sermons that we have and uh, see if any of that interests you. We'd be happy to come speak at your church and um, and, and, and help you out there, all right? So just um, consider that as we go through this week's lesson, all right? We're going to move right into it here. Now, I do want to place a little bit of a disclaimer on this, okay? Now, now this this week's lesson is called A Historical Atom and the Authority of Scripture. A Historical Atom and the, his, and the Authority of Scripture. And uh, again, this is the last chapter in the book. It was actually written by the editor, Okay, Dr. Terry Mortensen. Of course, he did another one of our chapters, which focused in mainly on the kind of the general case for the age of the earth. Of course, here on this podcast, we argue from a young age perspective and a young earth perspective. In other words, we believe that the earth and and uh, even the universe is created in a span of just about 6,000 years ago. And of course, we talk about the evidence for that here on this podcast. Now, uh, the disclaimer I, I kind of want to give is, is this. If you've been listening to this for a while, 
you've heard me uh, say almost to the point of of probably annoying you, uh, but you've heard me say that it's my goal in general not to tear down dissenting opinion, especially within the church, but in general. Um, where the goal of this podcast is a little different. Now, inevitably, we're going to touch on that from time to time. Inevitably, we're going to have to comment in areas that we disagree with others in the church and outside of the church. I mean, that is that is an obvious given based on the nature of this podcast. But in a general sense, we typically try to stay away from that, not because it's a bad thing necessarily. There are ministries out there who have been around for a lot longer than me, who are much larger than our ministry here, who have done a great job for years upon years upon years at showing weaknesses in evolution theory, showing the inconsistencies in evolution theory. And look, I am am utterly grateful to them for what they do. And I have... In the past, and, 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 and this is borrowed language, okay, I've actually borrowed this from another pretty prominent creation scientist, uh, but in the past I've referred to this as evolution ba- bashing, okay, and uh, in doing so I've, I've been corrected by one or two people, and, uh, and so maybe I won't use such harsh of language, okay, I don't mean it in a bad way when I say evolution bashing, it's just in a way that's kind of what it is, Um just this idea that evolution uh, is is not going to cut it. it, it it's not an adequate explanation for the way things are in the world. And I agree with that, and I think that considerable time needs to be spent by somebody going through that. And uh, so we're thankful for the larger ministries that do. We're also thankful for the smaller ministries that do. There are lots of other ministries out there like mine, a little bigger maybe, or a little smaller, or around the same size, really, who are doing this kind of work. And uh, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for their contribution. Generally speaking, though, that's not what we do. Generally speaking, we tend to come at it from the other way and say, okay, now that we already know, see, we kind of already assume going into it that, uh, that the evolutionary worldview doesn't, uh, doesn't cut the cake, all right? to explain the world the way that it is. But then we start asking the other question. We say, well, all right, starting with creation, starting with the starting point of God's Word, we know what God's Word says about the creation. What does our science look like if we use that as the backbone and we use that as the foundation and we use those timelines as the assumption? And, of course, that's what, many creation ministries do, but the point is is that we underscore the point of just starting from that foundation and building up a uh, a creation worldview from there. Now, I'm not a scientist. I'm not even a, a researcher in that sense of the term, but I am a communicator, and I am someone who is able to read um, after different uh, viewpoints, be it technical or non-technical or whatever, and 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 make sense of it and and hopefully convey that in a way that makes sense to you. And so what I want you in general to be able to see um, and to be able to hear each week out of this podcast is uh, different things that help us to constructively enhance 
our understanding of the natural world from a creationist perspective. Now, that's the goal. My disclaimer for this week is that this week's lesson is basically the complete opposite of that. And now again, what I'm just doing is going through the source material in this book. I don't necessarily um, disagree with any point that Dr. Mortensen makes. However, um, I'm very careful with the kind of language that I use when I'm talking with somebody who does not believe the way that I believe. And the reason being is because even though if you look at Jesus, the way that Jesus answered questions, the way that Jesus dealed, uh, or dealt excuse me, with those who disagreed with him, he made no quips about it. I mean, he was he was always right to the point. He 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 never sacrificed um, truthfulness on the altar of compassion. But he also never sacrificed compassion on the altar of truth, meaning that he always answered every question with the meekness and fear we're told about, right, in 1 Peter 3.15. He, um, he was an ambassador, like Paul talks about. He graciously answered questions. He turned things around. He showed others the absurdity of their arguments, um, but he never uh, diminished his character in doing so. And I think a lot of times the language that we use when we're talking with people who don't agree, uh, especially just in general coming out of the Young Earth camp, and I'm not the only one who thinks this, uh, sometimes our language is unbecoming of the gospel of Christ. And a lot of times, just our mere language. Now, look, I've, I've talked to the people, okay? Now, some, some, it's one thing to talk about it amongst our own people, but it's another thing to actually go out and hear what some other people are saying. As illogical as this sounds, I've talked to individuals who have left the young earth camp and became old earth creationists simply at least they had at least this is what they say that they've left simply because of the attitude of some young earth creationists they say it's unbecoming of the gospel and so it must not be true now look i know that's a bad argument I know that um it's it, it's possible that that's not actually the reason at the heart of it that they that they even left, but it's what they say. Um, and I'll be honest with some of what I've seen, I'm not sure in, in some cases that I wouldn't blame them. Sometimes it's harsh. And so I said all that to say this, I agree with just about every point and sentiment that Dr. Mortensen makes. However, um, any place that I'm quoting here, which I'm going to be doing a lot of quoting, um, I, you know, I, I don't want the language to be mistaken for language that I would use in the same situation. Um, because, again, sometimes I think some words are unhelpful, and rather than, um, for the rhetorical value that they're meant to convey, rather than score a point for us, I actually think they score a point against us, uh, because we're not communicating on a level that um, others are receptive to. We're communicating at a level that is standoffish, and, and sometimes even um, just uncharacteristic of, of how I, I believe that a Christian should communicate. So um, I'm trying to be careful with my words here, but I, I just I want you to know that I agree with the sentiment of this chapter, but 
there may be a word or two that uh, I would have used differently in a different situation, and uh, and I think that's important. And, and and if you don't, then I'm sorry. You know, just ignore the last five or so minutes. But look, um, I think it's important how we approach this how we approach these kinds of conversations. Now, I know we're very concerned with scriptural authority. I am too. That's the point of this chapter. Um, absolutely, I am concerned with scriptural authority. I am concerned with uh, people taking the Bible seriously. I'm concerned with a presuppositional standpoint, right? I mean, I want people to start with the Bible, build a worldview from there. Uh, it, it, this, um, this 67th book of nature stuff, promoted by the Reasons to Believe or, or organization and others. Um, uh, look, I, I, um, I, I just simply don't agree. I, I'm sorry. I just, I just don't agree. I, I, don't think, um, I don't think that an interpretation of science is equal to God-breathed Scripture. Um, um, it's, it's the difference in facts versus interpretations. And there are those, of course, who'll say, well, yes, but we interpret the Bible. And that is true. But the Bible was um, guided and God-breathed. This is God's message to mankind. It seems to me that God would be able to very clearly communicate, all right, um, what he meant about the history and the origin of the world. And I want you to think about this because I do have some people who listen, who I'm even friends with, who are in the, um, you know, reasons to believe kind of the evidentialist, the um, old earth creationist camp. And I appreciate their willingness to listen every week, despite the fact that we talk uh, differently about their views. And so I appreciate them for listening in and trying to understand where we're coming from a little bit. And ultimately that's what we need. We need people who are willing to understand where we're coming from. And we need people who are willing to explain it in a, in a gracious yet firm way. But, um, what I started to say is this, without the Bible, how would you know, just think about this, that general revelation declared the glory of God? Of course, general revelation does declare the glory of God. And of course, what we mean by general revelation is, is the actual facts of nature, the observable nature, all right? Of course, it declares the glory of God. But would we know that it declares the glory of God if we were not giving scripture that tells us that we know that it declares the glory of God? Now, I realize the Romans 1 argument would be yes, but um, I think scripture is pretty clear. Now, you, you, we might disagree a little bit theologically here on this, but I think scripture is pretty clear that you're going to um, have a hard time saying that you're saved just on the basis of general revelation. Um, I've often heard it said like this, general revelation is sufficient for condemnation, but not for salvation. And I tend to agree with that viewpoint on things. And I think the Bible is, is pretty clear about that. So um, that's kind of my disclaimer. As we go into this, I want to just... Uh, you know, I want to underscore these points. I want to say that I emphatically agree with the points that are made, just maybe not some of the language used to convey them, all right, in, in some cases. And I've tried to, to hamper that a little bit. Um, I don't think I'm going to say anything that I wouldn't agree with here. And uh, if, I, if I do, I will certainly point it out, okay? So um, let's talk about this a little bit. Historical Adam and the authority of Scripture. Um, there are massive moral implications at stake here, right? The, 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 
based on the position and based on the truthfulness of the position that this book has argued for. If if what this book is saying, Searching for Adam, uh, if what it is saying uh, is true, then this really does affect the way that everybody should live their lives. And of course, it also has much to say about those who will live their lives in a certain way upon their rejection of the Bible's truth. The author writes that America is reeling in the face of a massive, breathtaking LGBT sexual revolution. It's also impacting the church as professing evangelicals celebrate their sexual immorality and seek to influence other Christians to do the same. One of the names that comes up in my mind is is Matthew Vines. You know, uh, Matthew Vines says that um, that we really have just been understanding this whole uh, gay Christian thing the wrong way. He says, of course, Christians um, can be gay. And what I find interesting is that despite everyone's emphatic rejection of such an argument, his argument essentially, now there's lots of nuance to it, but Matthew Vine's argument for, for the gay Christian idea is essentially that, uh, yeah, sure, Jesus and the other Bible writers taught that gay marriage was wrong, but we now know from science that there's nothing wrong with it. So we need to reinterpret the Bible to make that work. Isn't that something? You know, that sounds a whole lot to me like what a theistic evolutionist would say. Doesn't it? We know, we talked about this. We know that Jesus and the Apostle Paul were very clear about the teachings of a young earth because of the actual time that they were living in, the Jewish influence that they had. It was their culture. They obviously believed this, but we now know that they were wrong because modern science has told us that they were wrong and so we must reinterpret the Bible to fit modern science. Do you see how this goes? This argument doesn't work. It doesn't work for theistic evolutionism. It doesn't work for um, gay Christianism, all right? <laughs> I'm not sure how you would say that, right? It, it doesn't work for either of those positions why does it not work, though? It doesn't work because the Bible is our ultimate and final authority on all matters of life, spirit, and practice. Mortensen asks some very important questions moving forward here. How do we get to the place where large corporations and the federal government are bullying schools and states into making bathrooms and locker rooms dangerous places for women and children? How do we get to the place where professing evangelicals are celebrating the sexual perversion? How do we get to the place where professing evangelicals are denying a literal Adam and a literal fall? How do we get to the place where, according to many surveys, evangelical churches are losing 60 to 80 percent of their young people when they graduate from high school? Why is America on the verge of national suicide? Why is Eastern, or excuse me, Western Europe once so powerfully impacted by the gospel and a missionary sending continent, now the most difficult mission field in the world? Why don't 60 percent 
of British teens believe in the existence of God? Why do less than 2% of Britons go to church regularly today when in the middle of the 19th century almost 50% went to church regularly? Why is America heading down the same path? Hmm. Dr. Mortensen uh, titles his next section here The Collapse of Morality. Now, as Moeller, uh, Albert Moeller, of course, president, uh, I believe he's the president, Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, I could be wrong about that. I'm not exactly sure. I don't belong to that affiliation, but I think that's what he is. Uh, either way, he's a prolific speaker and also a writer. He has explained that uh, the decision by the U.S. Supreme Court on January 26, 2015 to redefine marriage did not come out of nowhere. It was the fruit of decades of moral erosion related to sex and marriage. He examines four significant developments. First, there was the arrival of modern contraceptives, which led to the separation of sex from procreation. You know, back in the day, so to speak, of course, there's always been this pleasurable element to sex, and of course there's always been this this sense where um, sex was going to be taking place outside of the marriage vows and it's always been wrong it's always been called fornication or in the sense when when one is married it's always been called adultery um, god's been warning about that for a long time but uh one thing's for sure we've certainly made it easier in the last century here in america second came no fault divorce which made every marriage provisional third was advanced reproductive technologies which enabled people to have babies without sex. Finally, there was the societal acceptance of cohabitation and sex outside of marriage. You know, you can't turn a TV show on. I I'm talking about the teen TV shows where they're having babies, they're, they're, they're having sex outside of marriage, and, and it's just a, it's nonchalant. It's just a regular thing. I mean, no bones about it are being made. High school teens just having sex, seemingly no regard for one another as a sacred human. The transgender and homosexual, quote, marriage, unquote, revolution was also preceded by the legalization of abortion, 1973, the court removal of Bible reading, 1963, and prayer, 1962, from the public schools, and the explosive heterosexual revolution and the widespread use of um, illegal drugs in the 1960s and 70s, fueled by erotic, rebellion-stimulating, and violence-promoting rock music. Now, I want to say something here. And this goes for this chapter in general, the statement I just made, the last few statements I've just made. We need to be very careful to avoid a logical fallacy here called the post hoc ergo propter hoc. Now that's a lot of Latin, right? It means this. After this, therefore, because of this. And what it is, it's a fallacy of causation. In other words, it's to say that um, if one thing happens and then another thing happens, this fallacy comes into play when we falsely assume or falsely conclude, I guess you could say, that um, 
that one thing happened directly as a result of another thing. So if you've got A and B and you notice that B happened, um, you're saying that B is caused because of A. But that's a logical fallacy because it might not be that way. There may be other factors that have contributed to um, to B. And that's the post hoc ergo propter hoc or a post hoc fallacy uh, for short. And so we have to be careful. Um, yes, it is true. All of these things... Um, no-fault divorce, legalization of abortion, removal of prayer and Bible reading from court, from schools, and from all these different things. Most certainly, these are factors that have come into play when we look at the state of our culture as it is. But we also need to realize that some of the most cruel acts of evil and humanity that have ever been have taken place at a time before now. I mean, we're not hanging people on crosses anymore. That was back in the day. I mean, that was considered about as bad as it can get, even today. I mean, that's considered pretty rough. And to my knowledge, we're not doing it anymore. So look, I mean, there's, you know, we're going to have to realize that, yes, I mean, in the specific cultural context of America, most certainly you can kind of see this rapid decline starting in the middle of the 90s, right? You kind of see this, this decline, but remember, the eugenic stuff that was happening in America, I mean, that was happening in the early 1900s, and we talked about that a few weeks ago. So, yes, these are all factors, but let's be very careful to avoid that we conclude that directly because of one thing, another thing is happening. Now, it could be true, indeed, that God is actually judging us, right? And that, and that some of these things that are happening to our nation today are direct judgment as a result of the decisions made yesterday. Now, that could be most certainly true, but it's kind of hard to say that conclusively. So while, yes, this is all part of building a case, right, to the point that um, our, our moral compass, essentially, in America is absolutely collapsed, Let's be careful and make sure that we're not falsely um, um, committing a post, or not falsely, but, but but let's make sure that we're not committing a post hoc fallacy here. Make sure that our, um, you know, that we're keeping our integrity in that regard. Okay. Now, the religion of humanism, which is essentially the idea that there is no creator and that natural science is the ultimate authority has thoroughly invaded our schools and our thinking. And if you go to a college campus or high school campus for one day, that is about all you need to know that that is the case. Um, children very young are beginning to learn that there is no God, there is no creator. Man is, of course, the ultimate because we are the highest of all form of animal, um, and we are just an animal, of course. So there are certain things that we should be able to do um, for some reason, because we are humans and because we have human rights on one hand, but on the other hand, we're really nothing more than just an animal, and some of the laws that are applied to humanity would be ridiculous if applied to humans. Now, the reason that it is that way, we know, is because humans are made in the image of God. And so we, we ultimately, we give, we give credence to a biblical worldview, even if, if you're not a Christian, you ultimately are giving this, um, this credence to what Christians believe, because there's no justification for human rights or anything of the sort on any sort of atheistic worldview, any worldview driven by a commitment to naturalism. Now, the late atheist professor, William Provine, he said this, let me summarize my views on what evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. And these are basically Darwin's views. There are no gods, 
no purposes, no goal-directed forces of any kind. There's no life after death. When I die, I am absolutely certain that I am going to be dead. That's the end for me. There's no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning to life, and no free will for humans either. Uh, now, William Provine knows differently today. He has passed away. He knows who the creator is now. Uh, but can I just say he was consistent? He was right. No ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning to life, and no free will for humans either. Just recently did a video on that on the website. Um about free thinking and, 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 and biological determinism. In, in, in other words, um, humans are biologically determined if there's no God. We're just simply, uh, to put it as Richard Dawkins put it, dancing to our DNA. Now here's the logical conclusion. If evolution is true, we are just animals. It's the law of the jungle, the survival of the fittest. Everyone does what he thinks is right in his own eyes. Remember, we saw that ended pretty bad for the nation of Israel. Without Adam and Eve in the fall, sin is a myth. Selfishness is just an animal instinct. Stags and bulls will have sex with any female they like, when they like, and they are polygamous. So what's wrong if humans do the same? Dogs kill birds and lions kill gazelles, and we don't call that sin. So if Hitler or Mao or Stalin or ISIS or abortionists murder and steal for millions, it's not wrong. It's just survival of the fittest. Now, that's the logical working of a view that has completely dismissed God. The assault on the gospel. The assault on the gospel. Evolution theory not only destroys biblical morality once dominated, um, that, that once dominated Western culture, but as many authors in this volume have shown, it also destroys the gospel by destroying the historical reason that we need the Savior. Namely here that Adam sinned and all of his descendants are sinners in need of salvation from and reconciliation to their creator. Let me give you kind of this four-point case here that Mortensen makes to this effect here. In a 1909 lecture in Los Angeles entitled Breakdown of Protestantism, Edward Adams Cantrell, later part of the Pro-Evolution um, Science League of America, formed in 1925 and associated in later years with the ACLU, said, All this is fundamental, for on the genetic story is based the entire Christian system. Without Adam's fall, there's no need of Christ or the vicarious atonement. With the removal of the foundation, the superstructure falls. In 1978, atheist Richard Bozarf declared uh, in American Atheist uh, magazine that Christianity is, must be, in fact, totally committed to the special creation as described in Genesis. A Christianity must fight with its full might fair or foul, against the theory of evolution. It becomes clear now that the whole justification of Jesus' life and death is predicated on the existence of Adam and the forbidden fruit he and Eve ate. Without the original sin, who needs to be redeemed? Without Adam's fall into a life of constant sin terminated by death, what purpose is there to Christianity? None. Frank Zindler President of the American Atheist, when he made this statement, remarked that the most devastating thing that biology did to Christianity was the discovery of biological evolution. 
Now that we know that Adam and Eve never were real people, the central myth of Christianity is destroyed. If there never was an Adam and Eve, there never was an original sin. If there never was an original sin, there is no need of salvation. If there's no need of salvation, there's no need of a Savior. And I submit that puts Jesus, historical or otherwise, into the ranks of the unemployed. I think that evolution is absolutely the death knell of Christianity, he said. 2006, Richard Dawkins, world's most famous atheist and probably widely read atheist, told the world, Oh, but of course, the story of Adam and Eve was only ever symbolic, wasn't it? Symbolic. Really. Jesus had himself tortured and executed for a symbolic sin by a non-existent individual? Nobody not brought up in the faith could reach any verdict other than that. Barking mad. This is what the atheists say. The atheists realize what evolution has done to Christianity. The atheists realize that evolution and the idea of Christianity cannot be logically commingled. They do not work. I've heard Dawkins say in a TV interview that uh, essentially that he was more respectful of the evangelicals and the fundamentalists who would hold um, with resolve to the creation account as described in Genesis as far as what we believe is the six days and around 6,000 years because at least it's a consistent view. Lawrence Krauss, in a debate with William Lane Craig that I was watching the other day, um, got on to Craig because of the, uh, the, the order, getting the order in Genesis 1 wrong with his version of cosmology. And essentially, uh, Craig just didn't answer the claim because there's no good answer. If you're going to remain consistent, you've got to hold to what the text says. And when you're doing good eyes of Jesus, or excuse me, <laughs> wow, uh, that was wrong. When you're doing good exegesis and not eyes of Jesus, that is, you're drawing out of the text. This is a hermeneutical principle. When you're drawing things out of the text rather than reading things back into the text, there's only really one view. In my in my humble opinion and, and what I believe... Um, can be demonstrated, all right? So uh, you get the picture here? Uh, the atheists realize the inconsistency of accepting evolutionary ideas and still holding to Christian values. Now, uh, over the years, many have come out um, in support or either indifference to um, the theistic evolution idea and some even specifically of uh, the Biologos organization, who is, of course, the main proliferator of this view uh, among evangelicals. Of course, there's quotes in the book here that are included uh, from the likes of uh, Billy Graham, J.I. Packer, Tim Keller, N.T. Wright, and John Stott, just to name some, that uh, their quotes are given in support of the theistic evolution evolution view, or or at least in indifference to it, uh, and some directly in support of the work that the Biologos Foundation is is doing. Each of these now deal supposedly with the so-called harmony right of science and faith, but notice the ambiguous and misleading language in the statements by these individuals. If you if you read the book. You'll find that this issue is not whether 
science and religion or science and faith or creation and evolution can live together. Now, that's not really the problem here. The issue is whether the carefully exegeted truth of Genesis can be wedded to the dogma of evolution and millions of years. And again, I want to emphatically say it's not what does the Bible allow that we should be concerned with. It's what does the Bible teach. Now, for those who would say the BioLogos is not a harmful organization, has no harmful take on, on, on our worldview, note this quote from a Nazarene philosophy professor on their website. Substitutionary atonement, I'm quoting now, sees original sin as a major reason for Christ's death. But macroevolution calls the fall and the doctrine of original sin into question. Thus, evolution, uh, evolution excuse me, poses a significant challenge to substitutionary atonement. These critiques leveled against the substitution view are not intended to be the final word on atonement. They merely represent the major reasons for my own transition away from substitutionary atonement. In what follows, I intend to sketch an alternative view of the cross. Well, that should be alarming. One that uh, preserves God's goodness and God's justice. A view that identifies the crucifixion of Jesus as sinful and thus in opposition to the will of God. A theory more compatible with the best evolutionary science. In a follow-up piece, Bankard uh, tells us that he was that professor. Quote, How does the view I've sketched differ from substitutionary atonement? First, the incarnation is not primarily about the cross. God does not send Jesus to die. God does not require Jesus' death in order to forgive humanity's sin. Closed quote. And you know, it's uh, ultimately, theistic evolutionism is an assault on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has, at least according to this guy, certainly, has direct implications. Now, I'm not saying that everybody would hold that view. Of course they wouldn't. But this is a good place to logically look at what that outcome looks like. Now, ultimately, it comes down to this foundational issue, according to Mortensen, of the age of the earth. And I tend to agree here. Now, how do we get to this place? Well, there's this three parts to this evolution theory. There's, uh, well, multiple ways you could characterize this. This is just Morton's way of looking at it, I'm guessing, for simplicity, okay? But he basically says that we've got, look, we've got cosmological evolution, we've got geological evolution, and then we've got biological evolution. Now, of course, there are actually many more forms of evolution uh, in some sense of the term than that. Um, but he goes through those three and gives us the two driving assumptions behind them. Namely, number one, that nature is all there is, and number two, that the origin of everything can be explained by three things, time and chance and the laws of nature working on matter. And really, I mean, this is the view. I mean, just simply put, I mean, this is, this is the assumptions that they work off of in order to um, come up with the worldview that they have and the history of the world that they have. And of course, um, it, 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 it has bled into pretty much every scientific discipline. And he summarizes it like this. In other words, uh, given enough time, uh, billions of years, chance 
and the laws of nature, you can explain the origin of stars, galaxies, planets, earth, plants, animals, man, language, and even religion, we are told. These are the assumptions of philosophical naturalism, or, as he puts it, the religion of atheism. In the early 1800s, the idea of this millions of years took hold of geology, and about, uh, by about 1850, most of the church accepted the idea and embraced the gap theory or day-age view of Genesis 1 and the local flood view of Genesis 6-8 through 8 to try to accommodate the millions of years. Now, if you're interested in further reading, he actually, because that's quite a claim, he defends that claim in his works, Coming to Grips with Genesis, and also um, in The Great Turning Point, The Church's Catastrophic Mistake on Geology Before Darwin. So look at those books if you want to kind of see a more uh, summarized defense of his views there. Now, uh, we're running close on time, so um, uh, I'm probably... Probably going to skip some of this here. Um, he, he goes through and he gives us... Now remember, his field is geology. He's actually a historian of geology, which is a pretty uh, pretty interesting field, um, if you ask me. And so he, he knows quite a bit about the way that um, uh, the, this idea of uniformitarianism crept in. And I want to read a little bit of this because it's really important. Um, of course, James Hutton is is basically the guy that this all started with um, in the um, mid-1700s or so. He's essentially called the father of modern geology. Um, and his view uh, was simply this. The past history of our globe must be explained by what could be seen to be happening now. No powers are to be employed that are not natural to the globe. No action to be admitted except those which we know of, of which we know the principle. Okay. In other words, the present is the key to the past. We've all heard that. And that's essentially where this comes from. Now, of course, um, uh, Charles Lyell came in after James Hutton and he was widely influenced by those, um, views. And he wrote a book called the principles of geology. Um, and the subtitle, uh, of which, reads, being an attempt to explain the former changes of the Earth's surface by reference to causes now in operation. So, remember, modern rates and processes explain the rock record. Now, it's interesting that in um, June of 1830, Lyell wrote um, uh, in, a, in, in a letter, excuse me, to, um, to a fellow geologist, Lyell wrote that he wanted to free the science... Uh, specifically of geology, from Moses. He wanted to reconstruct earth history, silencing the view promoted by the Bible, uh, given about the creation week and the flood. Now, of course, this had influence on Darwin as well. Um, In an 1844 letter, he admitted um, that, I always feel as if my books came half out of Lyle's brains, and that I never acknowledged this sufficiently, nor do I know how I can without saying so in so many words. For I've always thought that the great merit of the principles of geology was that it altered the whole tone of one's mind, and therefore that when seeing a thing never seen by Lyle, one yet saw it partially through his eyes. Of course, this uniformitarian dogma really ruled until about the 1970s when some of the catastrophism um, ideas came back into play. Uh, Derek Ager wrote a little bit about this, and um, he uh, he wrote about the new catastrophism in 1993. And he said about uh, Lyle's influence, he said this, 
Just as politicians rewrite human history, so geologists rewrite Earth history. For a century and a half, the geological world has been dominated, one might even say brainwashed, by the gradualistic uniformitarianism of Charles Lyell. Any suggestion of catastrophic events has been rejected as old-fashioned, unscientific, and even laughable. And Morrison brings a pretty sharp indictment. He says that if the geologists were brainwashed by Lyle's uniformitarian, naturalistic principles for over 150 years and still are very influenced by him, then so was the rest of the world, including evangelical theologians and Bible believers who have told the church that we must accept the millions of years and that the age of the creation doesn't matter. Makes sense. If the science on this changes tomorrow, those views that hold scientific interpretations on equal footing, admit it or not, with the Bible are going to have to reinterpret how they see things. And I just don't think that's good exegesis. I think we need to get our views directly from what the Bible explicitly teaches and do the rest from there. It's this whole idea of ministerial use versus magisterial use. We've talked about that before on the podcast, and surely we'll talk about it again. Of course, um, Stephen Jay Gould, Harvard professor, remarked about this. He said, Charles Zyle was a lawyer by profession, and his book is one of the most brilliant briefs ever published by an advocate. Lyle relied on true bits of cunning to establish his uniformitarian views as the only true geology. First, he set up a straw man to demolish. In fact, the catastrophists were much more empirically minded than Lyle. The geologic record does seem to require catastrophes. Rocks are fractured and contorted. Whole faunas are wiped out. To circumvent this literal appearance, Lyle imposed his imagination upon the evidence. And by the way, if you know anything about Stephen Jay Gould, he was no friend of Christianity. We call that a hostile witness. It's good. Um, Morrison continues on by explaining a little bit about the nature of old universe cosmology in conjunction with, with this. Uh, of course, he gives some of the views, such as from Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, who kind of promote this cosmology that's essentially just born out of the geological views uh, that we find. And so, of course, all these disciplines match up because we're all coming from the same assumptions. We're all coming from the same worldview there, looking at the world through a particular set of glasses. There is no such thing as neutrality. God said, you're either for me or against me. Those are the words of Jesus. He said, he is not with me, is against me. Right? So there is no neutrality. Nobody stands in the gap. Nobody stands in the middle between a naturalistic worldview and between a Christian worldview. There's really only two views of the world, one that includes God and one that doesn't. Now, uh, he moves on to this final section, the assault of the perspicuity and the authority of Scripture. Here's what he says. Many old earth creationists have protested. The issue is not the authority of scripture. The issue is the interpretation of scripture. But I must firmly disagree. The only reason people are coming up with all of these diverse reinterpretations of Genesis that were never heard of in the church before the 19th century is precisely because those interpreters have made what the scientific majority says about the origin and history of the creation their final authority. 
in the interpretation of the biblical text. Rather than interpreting Scripture by Scripture, which is the biblically derived and historically orthodox hermeneutic, and would never leave a reader to believe in evolution in millions of years, old earth creationists and theistic evolutionists are interpreting Scripture not by science, but by what secular, anti-biblical, scientific authorities claim is true. In the words of Davis Young, only with textual mutilation and exegetical gymnastics can we evade the clear teachings of Scripture. There is simply no exegetically defensible way to get a local flood in the Mesopotamian Valley out of Genesis 6-9, through or to fit millions of years into Genesis 1, or to harmonize human evolution with Genesis 2-7, The inerrancy, perspicuity, and authority of Scripture are all under assault by the theory of cosmological, geological, biological, and anthropological evolution. This 200-year attack is driven by an atheistic, naturalistic worldview that is antithetical to everything the Bible teaches. And I just want to give you the S here. We cannot with consistency, this, this closing paragraph here, we cannot with consistency believe the gospel, and yet not believe the Genesis 1-11 through 11 foundation of the gospel that explains why we need the Savior, that the first Adam's sin resulting in death and a curse on the whole creation. The gospel collapses into myth if Adam and Eve are not historical, or if millions of years of history truly occurred before Adam. It all stands or falls together. Furthermore, we cannot with any hermeneutical consistency reject a literal Adam and fall because science says Genesis is a myth but at the same time accept the virgin birth and resurrection of Jesus. The Genesis and Gospel accounts are equally historical accounts of miraculous events. Yet the same scientific majority that denies all of Genesis 1-11 through also insists that science shows that virgins don't and can't have babies, and dead men don't and can't rise from the dead. All those biblical accounts stand or fall together. And with that, Dr. Mortensen, I say, Amen. I think he's right about that. I think that the consistency is vital. The consistency of the Christian worldview is one of the things that is, especially in my mind, one of the strongest evidences for its truthfulness. And I think that theistic evolutionism especially destroys that consistent foundation. He closes out with this. Our final authority must be the word of God. But we don't have to stick our heads in the sand Solid scientific evidence confirms what God so plainly tells us in Genesis 1-11 through about Adam, but also about the fall, the flood, the very good original creation, and the age of the universe. Christian student, Christian layman, Christian theologian, Christian scientist, who are you really trusting, God or man? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and we want to say that we thank you for this study. It's been a wonderful study looking at your word and your world through this lens of of the writers of this book, Lord. And we realize that in in most places we agreed, in some places we disagreed slightly, and um, you know, in other places we were we were not able to cover it for time's sake here on the podcast. And Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to go through it, though, Lord, and and uh, and the opportunity to study about you and learn more about you and learn more about. Uh, why you made us and and who we are and how we can glorify you as our Savior and our Creator. We love you for that, Father, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Now, Father, we know that uh, 
you would have many uh, to be saved. You're desirous for all to be saved, Father, and we know that um, uh, in order for that to happen, we're going to have to become strong evangelists. We're going to have to know the creation message. We're going to have to be able to share it with others in a way that is gracious and loving, but also firm, truthful, and consistent. Father, we pray that in that endeavor, you would just help us with those things. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Hey, I want to thank you so much for joining me on this series. It's been great. It's been wonderful. Looking forward to what we get into next week. Uh, Just remember something as we close out here. You are made in the image of God. If you're listening and you're not a Christian, let me tell you, you, you've been made in the image of God. You've been made for a purpose. You've been made by a creator, by an intelligent creator. You have been, uh, to use a, a popular term these days, you have been intelligently designed for an intelligent purpose. You were put on earth to know God, really, and to make Him known before others. If you do that, as you come to know Christ, and, and as you proclaim Christ in your, in your witnessing and in your activities, just sharing with others, uh, my prayer for you is that you will stand on these truths, stand on the truth of the gospel. If you've not considered this view of the gospel, what I believe is the biblical view, man, consider it. Take time on it. Think about it. Uh, don't just believe what certain... Um, Uh, authorities and certain evangelical leaders tell you. Check it out for yourself. Look at the consistency for yourself. And um, hey, if you have any questions, jump on over to steveshram.com. Click the blue uh, button on the sidebar over there and you'll be able to ask questions and we'll play them on the podcast and and go through them. Um, And uh, hey, that's what we're here for. We're here to answer the tough questions about creation. All right. So we love you. We thank you for hanging out with us, especially on this series and looking forward to what God is going to do with, uh, with next week. And of course, with the rest of our podcast. All right. Thank you so much again, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.